This is the After Party, live with Jim McAllister and John Daly. Hey, hey, Uh-oh. party people. Woo! Click this, click <laughs> that, and we're live. And That's click easy. the like button and click the subscribe button. It's a click-a-thon here on the Although After Party Live. we should tell you live. that this episode of the After Party Live is not live. So it's not the After Party Live. It's that doesn't mean we're dead. Party. It's the After Party pre-recorded. <laughs> uh, you're not here today. Well, I'm not here today. Thank you. But It's uh, the big birthday trip. It's the yes. trip to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So we are at this time looking at jellyfish or sitting by the beautiful ocean watching sea lions play in the surf. Or, 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 or. <laughs> And um, I think I'm in the chat uh, talking to people right now. Making so. sure nobody gets out of line. You guys are well, awesome. No, you won't. I, I, you're the one that's going to get no, out of line. No, you're the, you're the uh, yard duty. I'm the uh, fun no, one. I'm there to socialize. You mean I'm the fun one. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm there to, you know, to, oh. just, to be a good host. I, you know what? You, it's interesting. You think of yourself one way. You think of yourself as still the fun girl in high school, right? The fun girl that... People like to hang yes, out Yes, I with. think of myself as the fun girl from high school. You think of yourself this way. Yeah. <laughs> you think of yourself as the fun girl. And then you find out other people don't think of you this way. They think of you as the yard duty. Aww. And it's like that this punch to the gut. Yes. Who wants to be the yard duty? That lady's the B word. You don't want to do that. <sighs> no, you could have the friendly yard duty. Getting people um, in trouble. Hey, you, knock that off. I'm, I'm trying. No. I can't go remember. to the office. There was no. this elementary school um, yard duty at La Tresera. She was very well known, had been there for decades. She was tall and blonde, dirty blonde. And I can't remember her name. Are you saying oh, she was Betty? A, sh- are you saying Betty was the hot yard duty? Betty. It was Betty. No, uh-huh. she was nice. She was. Okay. Um, please don't be superficial, Kim. Uh, <laughs> you said she was tall and blonde. She was tall and she was and blonde. nice. Okay. I'm just yeah, saying. I didn't say no. Tall, hot, um, blonde. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, you're gonna get me in trouble. <laughs> Although I did have a crush on Christy, who was who worked at the De- Lucchese's Delicatessen. Oh. So this is before they moved to their current location. Uh, this was in the '80s, and they I had closed a now. It's to, to go. Oh, closed, closed. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. There's a new deli there now. Yeah. A what? New, there's a new deli there now. There's a new deli in town. Oh, new deli yeah. as opposed there's to deli. There's a new deli oh. there. Yeah. Well, anyway, I had a big crush on uh, Christine uh, or Christy. Christy. Anyway, yeah. uh, we digress. Yeah, uh, we click do. like. Where did that happen? Where, where did we go with that? Let's go to Tennessee. Do we have to? Oh, I know. Sure All right. Let us take us to the place where people marry their cousin. No. No, wow. take us to beautiful Tennessee. Nashville's there. It's good. It's all good. Oh, what's that? That's something that doesn't belong. One of these things just isn't the same. This is an escaped wallaby who is swinging by Texas University campus just to hang out and say, hey, what's up? This wallaby escaped from its owner's home in Tennessee. Who has a wallaby, honestly? And it hopped across a college campus before they rounded it up. Party. And recaptured him. <laughs> Lincoln Memorial University said in a Facebook post that the Australian marsupial was spotted crossing Harrogate School's campus Wednesday before jumping off into the woods behind Grant Lee Hall. The wallaby was eventually captured by rangers at the Cumberland Gap National Park. Uh, its name is Boo Boo. Boo Boo. Boo Boo went on <laughs> Maybe a jumper. You wanted a picnic basket. Yeah. Hey, Kim. <laughs> Boo Boo, it lives oh. at a home in Harrogate and had escaped. And I, don't I would blame them. S- I don't blame uh-huh. him either. It doesn't look like the right temperatures for wallabies, does it? I'm sure at points of the, uh, in the obviously in the winter, I, they must keep Mm-mm. them inside. Yeah. No. That's not, no, it's not good. It makes me feel bad for him. He should be in the wilds of Although Australia. Although Boo-Boo is kind of a gender-neutral gender name, so we don't know if it's a, a boy wallaby or a girl wallaby. Who thinks to themselves, I'd really like a wallaby? Well, where are we going to keep a wallaby? I'll build a wallaby enclosure in the in the back garden. Why would you do that? Yeah, anyway. it's kind of mean. Yeah. yeah. And they say escaped like it's some kind of convict. It's like, no, mm-hmm. it's, it's like trying to get back to where it wants to be. Yeah. Um, Happier story out of California. Okay. I don't know if you saw this. California deputy. 
This They're is a so sheriff cute. deputy rescued a pair of puppies abandoned on the side of the road in the rain. He found the two puppies huddled up in a vineyard trying to get out of the rain and cold. This happened in Fresno County. Two puppies are warm, safe, and dry thanks to caring Fresno County Sheriff's deputy. Deputy Andrew Reichsteiner was out Hello, on deputy. <laughs> you know, this I'm... is going to be good for his dating profile. Good afternoon, Deputy Reichheimer. Yeah. Uh, he was out on patrol near Kolinga. Uh, Tuesday morning when he received a call about a couple of puppies abandoned on the side of a busy road. He found the two puppies huddled up in a vineyard trying to get out of the rain and the cold, took the pups to his patrol car, quickly yeah. wrapped them in towels to get them warm. They are now in the care of the Fresno Humane Animal Services, and uh, they seem to be doing just fine. Uh, and they should be up for adoption now. by now. This is a story about cute cop rescuing cute puppies, and it is all kinds of cute. Aww. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. This one isn't so cute. I don't. There used to be a store in Petaluma called Yardbirds, oh, and it's funny because it wasn't named after this, but birds had taken up residence, and it was oh, like okay. a like a Costco yeah. warehouse kind they didn't of just home sell, improvement like, store. No, no. <laughs> Pink flamingos. This this was um, real birds, like little tiny brown birds, and they would fly up above in the store, and they just lived there. Like Costco sometimes has birds up above. Free samples. <laughs> well, these birds have taken up residence inside of a Walmart in Saskatchewan, where they say shoppers were surprised to discover residents living up in the rafters at this uh, Walmart. Little birds, little birds flying around in recent days and in, we the have a video in the Preston Crossing you. Walmart in Saskatoon. Let's take a look. Some feathery friends have decided to make themselves at home. Lawrence alone on the flap they're creating. Some unusual guests were spotted spending time at the Preston Crossing Walmart in Saskatoon. Birds had been flying in and touching down. Jan Shattuck, executive director with Living Sky Wildlife Rehabilitation, says birds can be quite opportunistic, meaning if they are spending time indoors, it likely isn't by accident. When it's minus 50 out in Saskatchewan, they're not crazy. They're going to be looking for somewhere warm. These photos were taken at a Walmart in Prince Albert. Shattuck says there isn't much stores can do once the birds have settled in as they are not easily persuaded pretty hard to convince them to leave especially when it's snowing or minus 50 out while some customers were concerned others didn't see it as much of a burden maybe they just want to be free shattuck says customers should ignore the birds unless they are seen on the ground which may be a sign they are unwell they might be starting to get sick or more likely just be really 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 hungry and weak shattuck says birds should be given more credit for learning how to escape the elements Lauren Stallone, CTV News, Prince Albert. This is not odd to me because I've seen birds in Home Depot. I've seen birds in Lowe's. I've seen birds in Costco. Uh, I've seen birds in Yardbirds. Yard they go in and they live oh, in the yeah. in these very tall warehouse-like structures. And I think everything's fine. It's normal. Oh, yeah. Don't you know? Don't uh, you I know? Like, uh, did you get that she said burden? Yeah, I got that. Burden. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Pretty cute. She's like, birds aren't dumb. It's if it's fifty below, they're gonna come inside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's go to uh, Switzerland. Ready? Please. Oh, what's that? That's blue and green and colorful. Yeah. Switzerland's sex industry sees punters oh. order hookers <laughs> Wait a like Ubers, have sex in CD boxes, and rake <gasps> in three billion pounds. Wait a minute. These are sex boxes. Yep. Oh. Scanning his passport, a man fills out paperwork to finalize the details of his booking. But this isn't for a vacation. It's for sex with a woman on an hourly rate. Welcome to Switzerland, where prostitution is legal and paying for sex has become as simple as ordering an Uber. That's wow. right. You were looking at the you were looking at the drive-in sex structures in Zurich, each uh, large enough oh. for one vehicle to provide a safe and discreet environment for sex workers and clients away from residential areas. This is liberal Switzerland, where prostitution is legal. As well as uh, street prostitution, now websites offer clients a range of sexual services spanning all kinds of kinks and fetishes at the oh. click of a button. The sex industry is worth uh, more than $3 billion, more than uh, the country's domestic cheese production. Wow. Ew. But it sounds like a sex-positive <laughs> utopia for thousands of women plying the trade 
Across the country, the reality is much darker. Oh, oh. no. I was going to ask how it's working out for everybody. Yeah. Geneva, the second mm. largest city, attracts more than 2 million people every year, many of them sex tourists. Driving uh, around one area, uh, the author of the story says that uh, he saw scantily clad women posing in brothels like those found in Amsterdam's red light district and in the windows of launderettes and car washes. Some braving biting cold temperatures of negative four Celsius on the street Ooh. watched closely by their pimps. Sex workers must register with the local state. And while requirements vary, condoms are mandatory. But despite being legal, many find themselves in danger. In 2014, a Swiss financier named only as Robert S. murdered a Polish sex worker. Oh, God. In a 560 uh, pound, so that's like uh, around $600. Um, a night in a, a hotel room in Zurich before stuffing her body in a wine Ew. fridge. This he is was, so not party friendly. This is <laughs> this is sad. <laughs> he was later jailed for 17 years. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that's actually closer to $700. $700. Zurich-based entrepreneur Eric, 33, has created a booking website called Safer Choice, a.k.a. Choice, aimed at sex workers not in a brothel in the hopes that its verification technology will keep them safer. He says just one in every 523 sexual uh, sexual violence or assault cases gets reported in Switzerland. Given that there are an estimated 12 million transactions for sex a year, we know some of these will be in the paid companionship industry. Um, and at one brothel, clients pay 100 Swiss francs for 20 minutes. Um, window girl Andrea from Romania said, British guys are so polite. I would like to see them more. Oh, this is a British story. Another girl who works the same area said, British guys like to talk more than anything else, before, after, even during. And the bro oh. brothel manager told me, we get a lot of English people. They tend to be a bit drunk. <laughs> oh. Ain't that the truth? But they're still nice. They can get a bit embarrassed when it comes to having a presentation of girls and picking one. Often they'll just ask for the first one or the prettiest one. I think they're just really nervous. All the girls in Geneva are legally registered. It gives them police protection and should anything go wrong. And as a result of the establishment, welcomes a higher class of um, clientele. Uh, well, it's good that they have this website to do background checks, I guess. Yeah. That, that aspect's um, good. Right? See, you had me back here at the box car, the car boxes. And I yeah, thought, oh, drive through. well, it's legal there and everybody's tested and you registered and yeah. everything's on the up and up and safe and there's probably security. And then you went to the bodies being stuffed in trunks. And I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't look like the whole sex trade is working out too well in Switzerland. Well, it depends on your situation. Brazilian mm. Victoria, 24, who has also worked in Germany, Spain, and Amsterdam, said this is the best place I've worked because it feels safe. Women here are mm. trusted to set their boundaries. We're not asked to do anything we don't want to do. When asked why she does it, Victoria replies, you're not going to believe this, for the money. I will be a billionaire one day. Oh. French escort 20, uh, Lydia, 22, agrees and admits she likes older men because they tend to be a little more experienced oh, and have too much money for just themselves. Anyway. Okay. So wow. the, uh, the owner says, while my girls earn money, it's certainly not easy money. They put in a lot of work when it comes to their appearance, investing emotional time in a client and so on. Not everyone can do this kind of work. Well, so, you've turned you me back into the yard duty. I'm very judgmental about this story now. Well, that's why I put it in there for you. <laughs> You're welcome. Let's go to this one. This, this is what is, uh, Kim thinks these, of that last story. These are little flags. Get therapy. No. Lazy. You see what they're shoved into? Yeah. Dog turds. They're shoved into dog turds. A Southern California neighborhood is has this mystery who is putting the flags of shame in dog turds this Kim is McAllister, happening you flying down no i'm not this is happening in this venice right up your alley right on the beach in venice an anonymous resident is uh is pushing back against people that are so inconsiderate that they allow their dog to do their business on your property or in a you know public area park walkway what have you and they don't clean it up so instead of cleaning it up for the person boop you get a flag lazy no get therapy mm -hmm. it's a tiny sign of shame these are small paper flags made with just a marker and a toothpick like and some paper <laughs> It does kind of actually. The lazy looks kind of like my handwriting. Uh, they increasingly can be found poked right into the top of the bit of dog poop left behind on sidewalks, in yards, and other grassy areas. I love it. 
I mean, you know, you sometimes you get so angry, you just you want to tell people what's going on. And maybe if people see the flags, they'll be like, oh, I'm upsetting other people in the community. Probably they'll just laugh and walk away. Yeah, they'll but get them to change their behavior. They look no. like little ships. Some people, yeah, they do. Dog, it's the USS dog poop. Uh, the notes are seen no. by some um, who either do it on purpose or are just too ignorant to realize they're supposed to pick it up. It's People say this is brilliant. I'd like to shake the hand of the person who's doing it, said one neighbor. The notes also seem intent on being funny, direct, and a bit purposefully shaming. Who raised you, said one flag. Another flag we see here says no. Some people think it's really funny. Some people think it makes leaving your dog turds behind cooler because then you get the flag. But other cities are looking around thinking, you know what? This actually might work for us in San Francisco or Petaluma or wherever it is that you are. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's funny. I like it. I think it takes a lot of time and effort to walk around shoving these flags into poop. But yeah. hey. If that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, and I think you're selling these flags online. I think that's what you're doing. <laughs> Is that what I'm doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have me. I, we should come up with some after party dog poop flags. We'd get you some have, good ones. You have mm -hmm. me dead, as the kids say. Get it? Oh, yeah, Headless I do. mystery, ancient nice. bodies in Stone Age tomb, all missing their skulls. This comes out of Sweden. A head-scratching discovery at a Stone Age burial chamber <laughs> nice. in Sweden really is nice. leaving archaeologists stumped uh they were all probably really <laughs> tall blonde and sexy maybe they worked you know as a yard duty yeah when researchers from the university of gothenburg excavated the ancient site at tiarp they found the skeletal remains of a dozen people were all missing their skulls ah. it's an early grave which dates the early neolithic period around 3500 bce note study author where, where carl is an archaeologist at the University of Gothenburg in a university release. This is the um, early Neolithic period, 3500 BCE. In where? What area? Sweden. Sweden. Okay. Me. Did they did they do a lot of beheading in Sweden back then? I don't know. I wasn't there. Mm, I wasn't okay. actually. You know. um, this excavation conducted in partnership with <laughs> Kiel University has brought light to a dolmen a type of stone burial chamber that has remained untouched since its construction in the Stone Age. The mm. site offers new insights into early Neolithic rituals and the early farming communities of Scandinavia, a time when agriculture was taking root in the region. One of the most puzzling aspects of the discovery is the incomplete skeletal remains within the chamber. So I think that's why it's puzzling, Kim, because they, they don't know. Sure, skulls. although if you look at this picture, you would think, well, I know what they did with the skulls. They stacked them up and made a skull statue. <laughs> skulls and large bones are missing. I was trying to represent, you know, the oh, missing part. Got it. Um, looked weird if you just had, like, random bones. Yeah. Skulls and large bones are missing and may have been removed from the grave, so we don't know whether uh, this has to do with burial rituals or what's behind it, uh, explains Sergen. Um, the unusual finding differs from typical Neolithic burial sites where smaller bones are often the ones missing. The remains studied by Torbjorn Alström, nice. professor of osteology at Lund University, uh, have uh, been identified. I'm working on my Swedish. Mm. Uh, my cousin works there. And I've been there a few times. So I, I I'm running out of excuses. Uh, as belonging to at least 12 individuals ranging from infants uh, to the elderly. Despite the absence of visible injuries, the cause of death remains a mystery, pending further DNA analysis to identify any potential diseases. The region of Falbygen, where Tiarp is uh, located, is notable for its rich Neolithic heritage, marked by over 250 passage graves dating from around 3300 BCE. These graves were built by early farming communities that settled in the area roughly 500 years before the construction of the Tiarp uh, dolmen. They lived by growing grain and keeping animals, and they consumed dairy products, um, highlighting the agricultural lifestyle of the people that were buried in the dolmen. One of the key objectives of, of this research is to understand the familial relationships among those buried in the grave in the grave so this mm -hmm. effort is part of a larger study detailing the tiarp back garden dolmen <laughs> and its <laughs> significance in the broader context of early megalithic tombs across scandinavia and northern central europe i think the mm -hmm. challenge when you go to sweden is to not pronounce everything like the swedish chef yeah exactly or yeah. Yeah, who's the who are the people on um the muppets is that the swedish chef, oh, on the the muppets? Swedish chef. Yeah. yeah yeah can i just can i, can I Can I point something out about this picture before we move on? 
at first I was looking at how interesting it is that all the nose shapes on the skeletons are completely different. Like on the bottom, the one, not the far left, but the one right next to it, that's kind of a more round one. Yeah. And then I was looking at the one in the middle on the bottom next to him. But the one on the right, on the bottom right, mm-hmm. if you look in his right eye, it looks like there's an eyeball, like a some a real person in there looking out. Oh, that's creepy. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yes. It like looks a clown. like an it looks like, like an, an eyeball, clown. like someone's wearing a skull as a hat. Yeah. That's freaky. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. I'm clicking yeah. away. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for that. Save me. This story is about <laughs> something else found. And it looks tiny, but it's very special. It's the remains of a Roman triumphal arch. And this was found in Serbia. It is. Uh, it was discovered in December at the site of the Viminacium, which is a Roman city near the town of Kostolik, uh, about 45 miles east of Belgrade. You say Belgrade or Belgrade? Belgrade. Belgrade. Okay. Beautiful city. Very strange atmosphere. Don't tell anybody you're American. Oh, really? They don't like Americans there? Because we bombed Serbia. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're, um, During their they're civil pan- war? Uh, during the war with Kosovo, right? Yeah. Kosovo loves us. Serbia does not love us. And uh, they've left the remnants of their Department of Defense building. So it'd be like mm-hmm. their Pentagon in, as a, a like a, as ruins, like a, a pile of bricks. Oh. And um, I thought that was weird. And I asked, and it's not like this country doesn't have the money to rebuild the building, but they, right. the consensus that I seems to be, what seems to be the consensus is that they leave it as propaganda to remind their citizens that the West attacked them. Oh my goodness. I found that interesting. But yeah, you have to report, like when you check into a hotel there, it's kind of like the Eastern European, like old Soviet style where you have to show them your passport and then they have to report you to the police to let them know where you're staying. Oh, wow. And so there was no way for me to avoid showing my U.S. passport to the guy in charge of the uh, the hotel. And then he started going off against the United States. And I'm like, don't talk to anybody about being American. Just pretend like you're Canadian. Right. Anyway. Yeah. So if you're going to the site. Was it worth going there? It's a beautiful country. The people are nice. The food is uh, great. Didn't understand the language, obviously. And yeah. so, um, but I went to a bar and they were having like a local, like folk dance kind of karaoke night mm-hmm. thing. So it was kind of surreal and cool. And it's a beautiful country and the river's nice and there's lots to do. Um, I, think I, wouldn't just, pu- I wouldn't put it high on the list. I think you just did a um, an impromptu travel Tuesday. So thank you for that. <laughs> All right. So this, uh, this is the first such triumphal arch found in this area and it can be dated to the first decades of the third century AD. So interesting. That's back when Viminacium was a sprawling Roman city of 45,000 people. There was a hippodrome, fortifications, a forum, a palace, temples, an amphitheater, aqueducts, baths, and workshops. This existed between the first and the sixth centuries. They said, when we found the square foundational footprints made of massive limestone pieces, there was no doubt this was a triumphal arch. This fragment of a marble slab with the letters reading C-A-E-S slash A-N-T-O suggests that the arch was dedicated to Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, known as Caracalla, who reigned from 198 to 217 AD. And it is believed he was elevated to emperor in Viminacium. They're hoping to find more pieces of this. They said they found one finely made pillar, beams, but they'd like to find more from the inscription on this arch. So... Kind of cool. So far in this area, they've found two Roman ships, golden tiles, coins, jade sculptures, religious items, mosaics, frescoes, weapons, and the remains of three mammoths. And now wow. this triumphant arch, which is really cool looking. Very cool. You know what else yeah. people value? They value mm. their coffee. Oh, yeah. Top seven strongest coffee brand brands ranked. Who doesn't love a strong cup of coffee in the morning? Some of us might even go to bed <laughs> thinking about that morning liquid mag- magic uh, the co- night before. That coffee Not- dude is ripped. <laughs> After the alarm goes off and we manage to drag ourselves out of bed into the kitchen, the first cup of coffee greets us like an old friend. No one wants to be met by weak, watery cup of coffee, so don't uh, brew your K-cup twice like I did that one time. 
Uh, for coffee lovers out there, finding the strongest coffee is more than a want. It's a, necess- a necessity. Lucky for you, there's no need to wander the coffee aisle at your local grocery store under, under caffeinated and overwhelmed. Uh, what defines a strong cup, strong cup of coffee? Is it the caffeine content? Is it the bold flavor? A combination, perhaps. While caffeine isn't essential to life, it certainly has its benefits. Recent study found that just drinking one cup of coffee daily may add years to your life by lowering the risk of death due to heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, respiratory problems, kidney disease, all of that by 12%. Drink two or three cups of coffee a day, your risk of death due to these diseases decreases by 18%. Well done, caffeine lover. Well done. Uh, Drinking coffee may also ward off dementia and Alzheimer's. Researchers uh, at the University of Indiana in Bloomington found caffeine may be one of 24 compounds that increases the brain's production of the enzyme NMNAT2. It, uh, that enzyme resists dementia and other neurological degenerative disorders. A study also re- reports that this NMNA2 resists uh, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Wow. Huh. Clearly, drinking coffee and strong coffee of that has long-term benefits. In the short term, strong cup of coffee helps us wake up, focus, get on our feet, and out the door. Uh, so here's their list of the top seven uh, s- strongest. Okay, okay. ready for this? Okay. And uh, number one, if you are uh, if you like your your coffee moody, Death Wish Coffee is for you. This company's slogan uh, is "Let's drink coffee and throw things at happy people." Oh, here the popular serving uh, single serving K cup is a death cup. Coffee bags are branded with the skull and crossbones at 728 milligrams of caffeine per 12 ounces of coffee. Death Wish appears uh, on every single strongest coffee list that has been found. Uh, In the words of your Manhattan mother in law, uh, this coffee will put hair on your chest. Tread lightly. This is not for the faint of heart. Number two, Devil Mountain Coffee. Born in the shadow of California's Mount Diablo. Oh, it's local. Devil Mountain Coffee has been making disciples of their patrons and terrifying coffee drinkers around the world with its (laughs) insane caffeine content. Nothing touches Devil Mountain, specifically the company's black label uh, blend. Chris Clark from Brew Coffee at Home explains, while the FDA recommends a a safe and healthy 400 milligrams, right? We talked Mm -hmm. about that a lot. This black label coffee quadruples that with 1,550 milligrams per 12 ounce cup of coffee. No, 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 Uh, that's too much. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Mm -mm. Um, It holds the spot on the caffeine informers list of deadliest coffees in the world. You need to be extremely cautious when drinking this one and not be only highly tolerant to caffeine, but also have low sensitivity to the caffeine molecule. Um, The Devil Mountain is also the official coffee of NASCAR's Sonoma Raceway right in our backyard. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is the stuff of Ricky Bobby's dreams. They say number three, biohazard coffee. Jesus names. If you're noticing emerging trend of strong coffees being named after stuff of nightmares, you're onto something. Biohazard coffee is so dangerous that they acquire their beans from a single source and will not disclose its location. It's okay with the possibility of becoming, or if you're okay with the possibility of becoming a real life Tony Stark, biohazard might be you. The experts at Twig Cafe note that biohazard is simply among the world's strongest coffee at 928 milligrams of caffeine for a 12 ounce cup. Mm. Um, we're finding over and over again that strong coffee does not mean an overly bitter flavor. Um, should you decide bio, uh, to give Biohazard a try, know that the brand does not make K-Cups. Um, so, uh, number four, banned coffee. <laughs> so Will bad is banned. Assembly, if the Weasley trin- twins were your primary source of behavior and inspiration uh, growing up, you may want to check out banned coffee. The coffee is so controversial, we cannot even find a company website. You have to order on Amazon or search your local grocery store. Uh, they recommend using the self-checkout and cash only while purchasing as to not get caught with this highly caffeinated elusive bean. 474 milligrams per 12-ounce coffee, uh, cup of coffee. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, just quickly go through the rest here. Black insomnia, uh, uh, 1,105 milligrams per 12-ounce cup of coffee. Uh, number six, very strong coffee. It's in the name there. Um they were uh, brainstorming the most original coffee brand name well into the wee hours of the morning. Uh, the caffeine is wearing off and they are unable to stomach any more coffee. They simply cannot go on. So they decide to tell it like it is with the name. Very strong cup of coffee. Uh, they're joking here. But um, mm-hmm. so this one is 1,350 milligrams in a Ooh. cup of coffee. Number seven is shock coffee, known uh, for being the strongest all natural coffee. Without any additives, shock coffee delivers over 300 milligrams of caffeine. Um, 
I guess they say all natural, so that, that they're not adding the caffeine in. I guess they mm -hmm. must be adding in caffeine with the other coffee. Um, that would make sense, right? Yeah. Uh, so this one is the strongest of the natural coffee, shock coffee, 300 milligrams in a 12-ounce cup of coffee. So, yeah, uh, probably not a good idea, um, no. but I thought it was interesting that, that, that these things exist. Yeah. So... I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I think I have a high tolerance to caffeine and I don't think even I would, I would go for that. No, I don't think you, you need it. Just drink enough, mm. yeah, a couple of cup, uh, cup, cups of coffee, you know, no, um, thank you. either Coachella or uh, Pete's if you want to go into a cafe locally. Do you want me to do this next story about long COVID or do you want to take a break? I think we should take a break. Okay. And then after we come back, we can talk about COVID. Yeah, we'll talk about COVID and we'll talk about a theft at a radio station that affected their ability to broadcast. We'll talk what? about all that. That's next on The After Party Live. The After Party Live is underwritten by our audience. And without you, this show wouldn't be possible. If you can contribute $10, $15, or $20 a month, it would keep this party a rockin'. The PayPal link can be found in the About section of the YouTube channel or at the bottom of the show description. Any dollar amount is appreciated, and it all adds up. On behalf of Kim and myself, thank you for your consideration. Aloha, bitches. It's the After Party Live. Thank you so much to our ongoing contributors, to people who help us fund the show. You know, the PayPal link is in the bottom of the show description and the Super Chat Super Stickers are live, even though we are not. So we thank you for yeah. all the ways you help support this After Party Live and help, help us keep it going. Yeah, yeah, so um, thank you to anybody who's been contributing yeah. uh, in the chat. And um, all those ongoing contributors really make this show possible. And mm -hmm. if you really want to help the show out long term, having that automatic a contribution through PayPal is really the way to do it. Even if it's just five bucks a month, it all adds up. It really does. Mm -hmm. And every contribution means a lot to us because uh, we are a small bu budget operation, uh, which allows us to bring you stories about COVID. We are COVID, small COVID, but mighty. COVID, COVID. Yeah, COVID, COVID. This is a story about long COVID. Mm. And what a bitch this is, honestly. People with long COVID are showing abnormalities in their muscle structure. The more this goes on, the more we learn about this virus. virus I thought of everything. This virus is a killer, man. Estimated about 3% of people in the UK are experiencing long COVID. So this is a story out of out of the UK study out of it um long COVID, of course that's when your symptoms persist long after COVID, right it encompasses a range of health problems that can be uh e and even if you just had a mild infection it can still do this to you some of that includes extreme fatigue shortness of breath muscle aches loss of smell can persist as well for about 50 percent of people that have long covid their symptoms also fit criteria for a diagnosis of myalgic encephalomyelitis that is a neuroimmune disease characterized by depleted energy muscle weakness pain cognitive dysfunction dysautomia dis sorry dysautonomia which affects your blood pressure and your heart rate um uh, they say one of the the most common features of this of this um, muscle my, myalgic encephalomyelitis is post -exer exertional malaise. So this is about the worsening of symptoms that takes place twenty four to forty eight hours after any form of exertion or exercise. That could be physical, physical. That could be cognitive. That could be emotional, and it could take days or weeks to subside. Right. So you exert yourself, and then twenty four to forty eight hours later, you get this incredible malaise where you could hardly move. Extreme it, fatigue. It really is. It's one of the most debilitating and least understood features of both this symptom, right, which is the uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis and long COVID. But new research could point to a probable explanation for why physical activity in particular worsens long COVID systems. The study found people with long COVID exhibit alterations in their muscle structure. So researchers analyzed muscle biopsies and blood plasma samples taken from only 25 people with long COVID and 21 people who had COVID but didn't have long COVID. Participants in both groups were around 41 years old on average. Uh, 
uh, pretty evenly split between men and women. The blood and muscle samples were taken before and after a controlled cycling test. So they put you on the bike. Participants cycled for about 15 minutes, starting slow, gradually increasing in intensity. During the cycling test, those with long COVID exhibited poorer muscular strength, had lower oxygen uptake compared with healthy participants, despite putting in the same amount of effort. These results echo the findings of previous studies suggesting people with long COVID have significantly reduced exercise capacity. And when they looked at the muscle samples of the people involved, they found those with long COVID had a higher proportion of fast twitch glycolic muscle fibers. These muscle fibers work at high intensity in short bursts, but they're highly fatigable because they have fewer mitochondria, which provides cells with the energy they need uh, energy they need to function properly. Hey, they I did... can relate. Short bursts of energy and then tired. Then tired and crashing. I hear well, you, researchers, sister. they did test on the mitochondria in these fibers, and they found that the exercise lowered mitochondrial function in the long COVID sufferers, indicating Ooh. that as well as having a reduced capacity for exercise, their muscle tissue had acquired damage during the exercise test. It goes on and on. I, I can't read you the like whole thing. Like long COVID. Like long COVID. Yeah. But it's part of a growing body of research identifying abnormalities in the metabolic, muscular, and immune functions of people with long COVID. And it suggests that targeting the mitochondria could help prevent the symptoms here. So, so that's when you the hear that there are researchers away. in China that are trying to supercharge other viruses, doesn't mm -hmm. that just make you happy? No. No, no, it doesn't. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. um, from disturbing news to more disturbing news, uh -oh. <laughs> this radio station in Alabama is in disbelief after a 200-foot radio tower was stolen. Oh. The radio station's tower ridiculous. was stolen. Who's... And we, we actually have video, so I wanted this to... This looks I'll... like some good metal. I'm going to take this. Yeah, I'll show you the uh, the story here. Check this out. This is from uh, Alabama. Starts now. Welcome in, everyone. New Live at 5. And this one really had us scratching our heads here in the newsroom. A 200-foot AM radio tower in Walker County is gone. Stolen without a trace. Those kind of things are just walk away by themselves. Officers are searching tonight for the thieves and the tower and trying to solve what is now a federal crime. WJLXAM's station with a much weaker signal tonight in Tristan Rupert in Walker County with the conversation with the station's general manager. Station general manager Brett Elmore remains hopeful that somebody shares information that allows law enforcement to find those responsible for the theft. Still, even he is blown away by what happened. I've tried all weekend to, to figure it out and I just can't. I've, I've been in the radio business around it all my life and, and then been in it for 26 years professionally. And I can say I've never heard of anything like this. And this one, I've seen it all now. Elmore says they first learned the theft on Friday. He says a Bushhog crew went down to the WJLX tower site to clean up the property, but the thieves had already cleared it out. When he arrived, he called me on Friday and said, uh, the, the tower's gone. And, I, and I, so I said, what do you mean the tower's gone? You know, and uh, are, you, are you sure you're at the right place? You know, and he said, no. He said, the tower's gone. There's wires everywhere and it's gone. Elmore says they are working with the FCC to get temporary authority to carry on while they rebuild the AM side of their operations. Still, it's unclear just how long the rebuild efforts could take. This really hurts a small operation like this, but like I say, uh, I believe we're going to find out who did this. It's a federal crime, and it, it absolutely will not be worth it to them. Again, if you know anything at all, they're asking you contact either Crime Stoppers or Jasper Police. Reporting in Walker County, Tristan Rupert, WBRC, Fox 6 News, on your side. Breaking so WBRC. <laughs> you like his accent? You know, I do, and I like that. You have to get to a market like that to get the accent. I like the, the DJ, how he turns around and, you know, waves at the camera yeah. guy. He's like, oh, the TV station's here. The TV station's what here. I wonder is how they didn't realize before the engineers went up there or the landscapers went up there to clear the area around the tower, how they didn't realize their signal was shot. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder how long it took. Um, yeah. You know what? I'm thinking what it is, is they also have an FM 
Mm-hmm. So the reality is probably not that many people are listening listen to uh, the from AM. The station or listening to AM. But now, yeah. if you were in a sophisticated, I would say even you know minor market or like say Santa Rosa, like mid market, mm-hmm. um, there you have technology monitoring the station. Like when we were yeah. at KGO, the moment the station goes off the air, there is a alarms, receiver. bells, whistles. Yeah, yeah. There's a receiver at the station in San Francisco right. that's also receiving the same signal you're receiving and analyzing that the fact that yeah. it's there. And if and once it's not there. It sends an alarm. It sets off alarms, and every engineer gets uh, paged. But it sounds like this is a very small operation, and this is in rural Alabama, so they must not have had the technology. Um, they were also on FM, and I'm sure that most of the people in the area were listening to the FM. Uh, but well, that that story was sent in by uh, speaking of KGO, our former uh, colleague yay! Brian Pelletier, um, who was a producer uh, of the Chip Franklin Show at KGO. So he's also on vacation right now uh, at the same time you're on vacation. So okay. I feel like I'm here all by myself. All by your lonesome. <laughs> I will say on that uh, on that story, they're setting up a GoFundMe for the radio station to rebuild the tower. And oh, they cool. need, I think they need $60,000. And when oh, I okay. checked in on the GoFundMe today, they were at like 1500 bucks. Oh. <laughs> like, oh. When you know when someone steals a tower like that, they affect the livelihood of all the yeah. people that work at that radio station. And it was and not this, in, it was not insured. That, well, that no, was and they insured. didn't have insurance. And the station has to then ask themselves: Is that AM station worth it? Right. Is it worth us to keep the station going, or yeah. is it worth us? And to And they just... are working with the FCC, trying yeah. to figure out another way to to get them back on the air on the AM side yeah. uh, temporarily with like a temporary permit. What a bummer! Uh, mm. Yeah, that sucks. Okay, let's talk about. PCA and Alzheimer's disease. What is PCA? PCA is an uh, an issue that happens with your eye. Ooh. Yeah, it is something kind of rare, and it's called posterior a posterior cortical atrophy. Posterior cortical atrophy, and it involves some troubling issues with spatial awareness. People have difficulty judging distances, seeing movement, recognizing objects. And there's a new study that highlights its close relationship to Alzheimer's disease in more detail than we have ever seen before. Never seen anything like this. Now, PCA and Alzheimer's have been linked with each other for a while because they share a lot of the same pathological... You know Alzheimer's is like linked to almost everything? It's true. And there's every five minutes, there's another study about it. Yeah, but in this case, it's uh, it's got a lot of say, the same pathological changes in the brain. But because PCA is so rare, they've had trouble doing a study on this and studying it alongside Alzheimer's. So um, to address that, they had an international team of researchers analyze data on nearly 1,100 individuals with PCA. And what they found was that there's a very strong predictor for Alzheimer's in 94% of cases. Telltale Alzheimer's brain changes were observed and were most likely contributing to PCA. They say we need more awareness of PCA so it can be flagged by clinicians. This from UCSF. Most patients start seeing their optometrist when they start experiencing visual symptoms, and they may be referred to an ophthalmologist who may also fail to recognize PCA. So they say better tools are needed in clinical settings to identify these patients early on and get them treatment. One positive effect of this study possibly getting people with PCA symptoms checked out as early as possible. The average onset age for PCA, 59, and that is several years younger than it is for Alzheimer's. The average time between symptom onset and the first diagnostic visit is usually nearly four years. So, Oh, no. Between yeah. the early onset Alzheimer's and drinking uh, artificial sugar in my Coke Zero, it's like a ticking time bomb, Kim. Mm-mm. No bueno. <laughs> Um, speaking of the uh, being down, yeah, less than half of Americans are very satisfied with their own lives. Uh oh, we're kind of uh, Debbie Downer today. I apologize. Well, if you're not satisfied with your own life, other than you know, I mean, there are some things beyond our control, right? We have health issues or what have you. But even I would say, even if you have relationship issues or job issues or whatever, you can always make a change and make things better, right? I, I like the fact that you're always looking for the uh, the silver lining. 
Okay. Um, for just the third time in more than two decades, less than half of Americans say they're very satisfied with the way things are going in their personal lives. The 47% of U.S. adults expressing high satisfaction with their lives has edged down three percentage points over the past year and is only one point higher than the 2011 record for uh, the low, the low record. Mm -hmm. uh, the previous low points in Americans' personal satisfaction have occurred at times of economic uncertainty. 46% reading was in 2011, came when the country was still recovering from the 2007 to 2009 recession. And the other sub-50% reading, 47%, was in December of 2008 during the global economic crisis. I remember that. In addition to the 47% of U.S. adults who are actually, you know, currently satisfied, 31% are somewhat satisfied, 11% are somewhat dissatisfied, and 9% are dissatisfied. The current data are from Gallup's January 2nd to 20, uh, January 22nd, uh, 2024 uh, poll. It's called the Mood of the Nation poll and also finds Americans' views of the national economy are largely negative. Gallup has asked Americans whether they are satisfied or dissatisfied with their personal lives since 1979, <laughs> since I was born. Um, Gallup added the question, uh, added the question measuring degrees of satisfaction in 2001. The combined 78% of U.S. adults who are now satisfied, very or somewhat, with their lives is well below the trend average from uh, 84%. Uh, that was the average since 1979. It's also the lowest since 2011. It's down five points over the last uh, year and comes just after uh, four years after ha hitting the high of 90%. In January of 2020, when economic confidence was at a 20-year high shortly before the COVID-19 pandemic. That's interesting, mm -hmm. which, of course, forced widespread closures that resulted in an economic collapse uh, in the U.S. Um, I had just gotten a new job. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was looking up. Majority of Americans across all key <laughs> demographic subgroups are at least somewhat satisfied with their lives, but only a few groups have majorities saying they are very satisfied. This includes those with annual household incomes of $100,000 or more, married yeah. adults, and those who attend religious services regularly, college graduates, Democrats, and those aged 55 and older. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, bottom line, Americans are currently less satisfied with their personal lives than they have been since 2011, whether that is based on the percentage satisfied or very satisfied. This lower satisfaction level coincides with weak economic confidence. However, some groups of U.S. adults are still registering majority-level high satisfaction with their lives, including higher income, married, more religious, college-educated, older Americans, and Democrats, as we said. So mm -hmm. there you go. That's the Why report. Why are Democrats so much more satisfied? <laughs> wow. Try not to get too political. Because they're know. not angry and bitter, maybe? I don't know. I, I'll, let you, I'll let you handle the political side. Oh. We don't talk about politics on the I'm after gonna, party. I'm gonna keep you my know what we clean. talk about, though? Uh, wait, this oh. is the wrong picture. <laughs> no, that's not right. I was just looking for a regular picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. But What is oh, that? I, is that, that, is, like that space works. lasers? It is space lasers. It is, is the uh, moon? So here's the question moon. for you. Sometimes you see these, these amazing feats of, you know, of human ingenuity like the pyramids or mm -hmm. you know the, the wonders of the world right and they're really 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 old and that begs the question how long do you think the golden gate bridge is going to last is it going to be here in a hundred years well based is on the amount of money that they're taking from us better. Years? oh well the bridge is almost a hundred years old it wasn't built to last this long right um, so now they're trying built to, to take our money. It was, it was, it was indeed the prediction of the lifespan of this bridge is not necessarily easy. So the bridge's construction employed high quality steel and cutting edge techniques for the first time. The steel towers on the Golden Gate can withstand winds exceeding 160 miles per hour. The bridge itself can sway a surprising 27 feet without compromising its integrity. Wow. That's side Mo to side. It's crazy. Modern materials like fiber reinforced polymers could potentially reduce the weight and the construction costs in a future bridge. If the Golden Gate Bridge were rebuilt today, they would almost certainly use lighter, stronger materials. 
the weight that because of what they did use the weight of the bridge puts stress on the structure the self weight is typically responsible for using up to 70 to 80% of its resistance. The max, that's the maximum load it can bear before it fails. So if you reduce it, the weight, then the bridge's structure would need less strength. All right. Some things they say they wouldn't change. The massive cables that you're used to hold up the span of the bridge are still considered state of the art, even almost 100 years after it was built. Um, they say daily inspections and meticulous maintenance are the lifeblood of the Golden Gate Bridge from repainting it, which they haven't done in a while, to replacing worn bolts. Bolts. They have a dedicated team keeping the bridge in, a continuous in process shape. Of repainting. They're supposed they start at to one be, end. but they didn't for a while, and it was getting really shabby. And I haven't been over it for a while. Have but they explained why they stopped? I don't remember them saying that they stopped. I don't know if it was funding or COVID or what, but for a while you, it got pretty raggedy because if you don't i mean it's mm. to preserve the structure so they're taking our money you better get on it you know what they also mm. didn't do i don't know if you noticed they um they hadn't paid they hadn't paved or um fixed um, small potholes after you mm -hmm. go through the toll plaza do you ever did you notice that it no. was like i want to say over a year maybe a year and a half there were these like you know small but big enough that if you hit it with your tire you'll notice kind of potholes mm -hmm. like chunks missing from concrete because the it's not it's not asphalt there it's like concrete yeah. Um, they finally fixed it. And I'm thinking, oh, you finally, <laughs> you're spending some of that money you take from us every time. I wonder if um, when they when they use the new materials, if they're going to replace the um, the railings on the side of the bridge. Well, they're trying to make everything lighter. Oh, yeah. When they replace the railings, hopefully yeah, they'll, they'll fix that sound. That will call out to mm -hmm. these uh, spaceships here. Maintaining the Golden Gate Bridge costs $85 million a year. And because we're an earthquake country, right? There's a multi-year $400 million project underway to retrofit the GGB with additional earthquake-resistant features. So that would solidify its stability as well, So where did well, that $85 million go every year while they weren't exactly. painting? What I want to know. I want to know more. Uh, this bridge trust them, Kim. was not around for the 1906 earthquake. It did survive the 1987 quake. Um, whereas the Bay Bridge had a big problem that day. Remember that? Mm -hmm. um, they say that it's unlikely the Golden Gate Bridge would ever collapse, but an unknown future threat might mean the bridge might need to be closed for a long time for repairs. They don't know. They're the expert opinion on how long the Golden Gate Bridge will last. You guys have a guess? How long mm. do you think the Golden Gate Bridge will last? 250 years. Pretty good. Pretty good guess. Current assessments suggest the Golden Gate Bridge has at least another 80 years left. Mm -hmm. 80 more years. Potentially even longer if we do it right and continue to maintain it and upgrade it. If we do that, some experts believe the Golden Gate Bridge could stand for centuries. Do you know how long and it took to build? I don't know. It was a couple. What, was it ten years? Four years. Four years. Yeah. Nineteen thirty-three to nineteen thirty-seven. Mm. It opened on May twenty-seventh, nineteen thirty-seven. The man that created it, his name was Joseph Strauss, and he, when he was asked how long this bridge will last, he said, "Forever, forever." Now, eighty more years. That's what we've got, unless we maintain it and do right by it. And yeah, then he didn't know we about the transit up. district and the uh, ferries that he was going to have to subsidize. They no, he didn't about know that. about that. I wonder if he knew about the $10 bridge toll. <laughs> but you can see here, this is supposed to be the Golden Gate Bridge far in the future with, you know, right. Star Trek looking. And like double decker. Voyager like yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very strange. I guess everyone's. Are they shooting lasers or there's just propulsion? I don't know <laughs> that's the pro jet propulsion. Get with yeah. the program. Come well, on. It's a lot of traffic to be that close to the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, I'm sure we it have really security is. concerns. And um, yeah, aren't there? Isn't there a no flyover zone, Golden Gate Bridge? Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ridiculous. German princess. German princess becomes Playboy royalty as the first aristocrat to pose topless for the magazine. Why did she do it? Why? Xenia Florence Gabriella Sophie Ir uh, Iris, princess of Saxony. Wow, that's a mouthful. 
<laughs> Strips down as German Playboy's 2024 March cover star. This princess isn't worried about a royal scandal. Uh, I'm not going to say her name again. The princess of Saxony made history on Wednesday uh, as the first aristocrat to pose for Playboy. Um, the 37-year-old royal and reality star strips down for the cover of German Playboy's March 2024 issue. And inside the magazine spread is as racy as it gets, featuring mm-hmm. topless photos of the aristocrat who wears nothing but a bedsheet strategically placed over her body. Wow. Xenia wears a white bathing suit with the top pulled down and the crotch clasps undone. We're not oh. showing you the photos because that would that would shut down this operation. Mm-hmm. She also poses poolside topless, the only article of clothing on the model being a sheer skirt with a waist high uh, waist high slits. Her wavy auburn hair pushed to the side for a bombshell effect. In her cover story, she says that she's surprised that she would be surprised if her family members picked up a copy of Playboy in support. But she hopes that at least they tolerate it. She also notes that noble ancestors, including great 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 grandfather and last king of Saxony, Friedrich. August the third would have definitely approved of her latest gig. No, they um, wouldn't have. They, they're, Germany, ro- they're rolling over in their grave, thinking, "How inappropriate are you?" They're while royal. Hasn't had an active royal family or monarch since the end of World War One. The country does have several noble houses that, at one point, ruled over one or several of the German states. Behind the photo shoot is an empowering message from the royal reality TV star who earned her high title as a descendant of the German House of Wil- uh, Wetten, uh, according to the Independent. As shared by page six, Xenia's goal was to show that every woman is beautiful the way she is. Uh-huh. You don't need to conform to trends or have surgery to your body just to please someone. She, as Socialite said in her Playboy cover story, I have stretch marks and I'm proud to show them. Okay. Whatever you say, girlfriend. Yeah. Or maybe uh. she's just um, a narcissist and wants attention. Maybe. I don't know. All right. <laughs> well, let's talk about. You want to do the the dolphin story or should I move past it? Let's go to dolphins. Let's do the dolphin. Okay. This is a very rare dolphin leaping out of the water, stunning scientists in Australia. It is a piebald dolphin. I don't see these very often. They, um, there's a... <laughs> The researchers spotted this one in a group of five common bottlenose dolphins that were foraging for food. The study on this is published in the journal Aquatic Mammals from January. Oh, that's a good one. And this, yeah, it's, it's a top top notch. The researchers were in Hervey Bay in September of 2022, looking at these dolphins as part of a PhD research project, but one of them really stood out. They said, we noticed it right away. It had such strange coloration compared to the others. Instead of the normal gray coloring, this dolphin had several patches of white splashed across its body. So they nicknamed him Speckles as having an extremely rare skin condition known as piebaldism. Similar to albinism and leucism, where the animals typically have white skin, feathers, or fur, one of the study's co-authors said in this release, piebaldism is a partial loss of pigmentation. So the individuals show this patchy coloration instead of being completely white. They can also look a bit sunburned. And so the top of the dolphin's dorsal fin is a little bit red. Um, Hmm. Only 24 cases of piebald dolphins have ever been recorded. Only six have ever been photographed. And Speckles is the first piebald dolphin ever seen in Australia, one of the world's most unusually colored dolphins. Now, how cool is that? We're seeing one of only six of these ever photographed. Wow, that's pretty yeah. cool. Hi, Speckles. Hey, Speckles. Yep. Um, from Speckles and uh, this uh, condition where you, you know, have multiple colors mm-hmm. to another story about color. Why blueberries aren't technically blue. Did you know that? They look blue to me. Blueberries appear purple. They appear blue without having any blue pigment. Why? What? If you open up a bright blueberry, (laughs) the blue skin on its outside does not match the dark reddish purple color inside the fruit. However, their skin does not actually contain blue pigments, which would normally be created by their color. Instead, the random arrangement of microscopic structures on the natural wax coating... So there's a wax coating on the outside mm-hmm. of the blueberry. It gives their berries a blue appearance. The findings are described in a study published um, February, February 7th <laughs> in the journal Science Advances and can be applied to other fruits, including slides, 
You know what a slide is? No. Do you? I've never heard of that. I don't know. I've never heard it's of that. Type slide, of, it's type of slides, fruit? damsons, damsons. Heard of that? Are these and, types of apples or something? Uh, they say fruits, slides, damsons, D-A-M-S-O-N, and um, I'll let you Google that. Google it. And juniper berries. I've heard of them. Uh, the color blue is a very rare one in nature. You know that. With fewer than one in 10 plants sporting the common human favorite color. It's partially because there's not a true blue pigment in the natural world. To appear, uh, to appear this color, the molecules in both plants and animals have to perform tricks to make them appear blue to the human eye. In some flowers, like bluebells, this primarily occurs when natural occurring pigments or colorants are mixed the way you can mix different paints to change the color. Red pigments called anthrocyanins cyanins, anthrocyanins, are the most common in nature and changes to acidity and pigment color um, or in the pigment changes the color. Combined with reflected light, day flower, hydra hydrangeas, and corn flowers can have these colorful azure flowers, right? It's not entirely clear. Uh -huh. Azure. Azure, but yeah, go azure. ahead. Azure, azure, azure. <laughs> sounded, sounded like Sorry for correcting Spanish. you. My bad. You sounded like a speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. uh, azure. Um, it's not entirely clear why plants may go to this trouble to be so blue, but a unique color may help them uh, attract pollinators like bees. For blueberries, the blue hue comes on the naturally produced thin layer of wax, like as we said, and this wax serves multiple functions in the plant kingdom. In, uh, including a self-cleaning coating or for added protection. But scientists still don't understand a lot of what the wax does and why. Um, we realize that there are loads of blue pigments in nature as well as tricks or ways that nature makes blue without the pigments, said the co-study co of the, um, I'm sorry, co-author of the study. Uh, we just don't know. Couldn't find anything written anywhere why blueberries and fruits like them are blue. The blue in the blueberries couldn't be extracted simply by squishing it since the blue is not located in the pigmented juice that comes from squishing the fruit. This led them team to believe that there was something strange going on in the color. Again, they, they examined the wax of the blueberry using an electron mic microscope and they found that the layer of wax that surrounds it um, scatters the blue and ultraviolet light while absorbing the other colors of light. This arrangement makes the berries appear blue to the human eye and blue slash UV to birds and other species that can see UV light despite not having blue pigments in the waxy skin itself. Isn't that interesting? I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. So, so I they're actually blue slash UV. I couldn't find out what slides are, but I did find out what dams damsons are. Next and slide. they're kind of like a plum type of thing. Mm. Looks good. So I think what they're talking about is blue fruit. So I went and I found for your... Um, viewing pleasure, B all the blue fruits. There are 17 kinds of blue fruits. Were you aware of this? No. I'm telling you. This is what we learn on the After Party Live. The first blue fruit. And then it's fruit, pronounced Azure. Azure. Mm -hmm, Azure. The first blue fruit, fruit is, of course, the, the blueberry. Mm -hmm. The <laughs> second, blackberries. They do kind of have that blue hue. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, elderberries, we mm. have. That's blue fruit. Kind of purplish. Black currants. Yeah, they all seem kind of black and purple tinted. Mm, like bruised or something, right? The color of a bruise. The damson plum was what it's you're talking about. kind of dark that you went there, but okay. Oh. <laughs> There's a blue tomato. Look at that. I've never seen one, one of these. Yeah, that looks it's kind a fruit. of evil. Looks kind of evil. <clears throat> blue tomato. Are you interested in this or am I spinning my wheels? Uh, no, Concord grapes, they have kind of, I would consider those purple, but yeah. I but guess. also like um, like plums on the tree, they kind of have that like, um, like that waxy kind of coating where mm -hmm. if you shine it, you know, you shine the plum and you get rid of that matte finish, then it'll right. be like a shiny purple on it. Purpley color. Yeah. So it's this kind of a matte finish. Blue marble fruit or blue quang dong. Mm -hmm. It is vibrant aqua blue color. And these are in Eastern Australia. That's kind of pretty. I'll take one of those to go, please. This, <laughs> this is uh, Gemun. Gemun? Gemun. We're Gemun. I want to jam it with that you. That looks black to me. Those look like dates. That looks like eggplant color. Gem, Gemun. 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 Uh, slow plums are bl allegedly blue. Again, they have that like matte finish to them. More blue tomatillos. Those look evil as well. Like mm. a curse. 
curse up among you. You think so? Upon your, yeah, curse upon your fruit. Honeyberry, a curse upon your fruit. Honeyberries, kind of long and odd shaped. They are uh, fruits from the honeysuckle flower due to their sweet flavor and floral scent. Also called the blue honeysuckle. Saskatoon berries. Those mm. kind of look reddish a little bit. I wonder maybe if they, uh, I wonder they get the ripe, birds, they're blue. I wonder if the birds in uh, the Saskatoon Walmart are into <laughs> Huckleberries. We know those. Juniper mm. berries, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, blue olives, oh, olives as well. Yeah, olives do have that blue hue. Uh, Phileas blue pepper. There's more that blue fl- like, fruits than I ever thought possible. That looks purple to me, first of all, but that looks like yeah, something like Harry Potter. With that Doesn't name. it? Yeah. So there you go. There's your 17 blue fruits. Well, Sorry. any final thoughts? Unexpected, but there it is. Uh, final thoughts. This is the uh, the end. This is the end. My final thoughts are, I don't know what happened in the chat today, but I'm glad you guys were here for it. Uh, <laughs> hope we all learned something the together. Chat was crazy. <laughs> I know much more about the blue fruit not here. than I ever thought possible. Thank you for contributing to the show in all the ways that you do, whether you're an ongoing contributor, a new contributor, a super sticker enthusiast, what have you. Um, thank you guys for, for supporting us. And we will do this again tomorrow. We put together three shows, pre-recorded, and then I'll be back on Thursday the 22nd. So uh, on the birthday trip. So thank you for being here. Have a great afternoon and have a good one, John Daly. Go forth and eat your berries. Bye-bye. Bye.